His is the music of America. He sang the songs of people he loved, of a young nation growing strong. His was an America of glistening rails, thundering boxcars, and rain-swept nights, of lonesome prairies, great mountains, and a high blue sky. He sang of the bayous and the cornfields, the weeded plains, of the little towns, the cities, and of the winding rivers of America. So reads the plaque on the humble statue of Jimmy Rogers in his hometown of Meridian, Mississippi. Bob Dylan once called Rogers, quote, a performer without precedent, with a sound as mystical as it was dynamic. His voice gave hope to the vanquished and humility to the mighty. I myself told you in episode 8 of this podcast that Jimmy Rogers was Elvis before Elvis was born. That's pretty high praise for a man whose music recording career lasted less than six years, but I promise it's well-deserved praise as Jimmy Rogers' short career had a profound impact on American music. Jimmy was born in 1897 the sixth of seven children and the youngest of Eliza and Aaron Rodgers' three sons. His mother died when he was just a kid, and he bounced around some after that, staying with various family members in Alabama and Mississippi. After a few years, his father remarried and brought Jimmy home. Jimmy had it in his head from a young age that he wanted to be an entertainer. Before he turned 13, he had run away with several traveling shows, all of which ended the same way, with his father coming to bring Jimmy home. Finally, his dad sat him down and gave Jimmy two options, go to school or come work with him on the railroad. Jimmy chose the latter. Aaron got Jimmy a job as a water boy. For the next few years, Jimmy worked to the sounds of the trains and the call-and-response work songs of the black rail workers along the tracks. It was these men who taught Jimmy to play the guitar and pick a banjo, and it's their sound that you hear in almost all of his later songs. Eventually, Jimmy was promoted from waterboy to brakeman. He married, divorced, and remarried, and would have two daughters with his second wife, Carrie. Tragically, his younger daughter, June, died when she was just six months old. Jimmy was in New Orleans when he got the news and had to pawn his banjo to pay for a ticket home for the funeral. Times were tough, but they were about to get a whole lot tougher. The following year, Jimmy got tuberculosis. He suffered a lung hemorrhage and had to spend three months in the hospital. The TB sapped his strength so that even when he left the hospital, he couldn't go back to work on the railroad. The only other skill he had was his music, so he turned all his attention in that direction. Jimmy organized a traveling show, much like the ones of his youth, and traveled around the southeast. Things were going well until a tornado ripped through it, destroying what they had going and sending him home to Meridian. He tried moving places where his TB might not be as much of a hindrance. He took a brakeman job in Miami 
and a switchman job in Tucson, but his health was just not good enough to hold a railroad job. In 1927, he decided to give the mountains a try and packed up his wife and daughter and moved to Asheville. He got an apartment for them for free in exchange for working as the building's janitor and drove a taxi as well. When he heard that Asheville was getting its own radio station, Jimmy saw a chance and went for it. He landed an unpaid but regular gig on WWNC. It was around this time that Jimmy met brothers Claude and Jack Grant and their friend Jack Pierce, who had formed the band The Ten of a Ramblers out of their hometown of Bristol on the Tennessee-Virginia border. Jimmy enticed them with his radio connection and got them to join him on the air and changed their name to the Jimmy Rogers Entertainers. When the radio show was canceled, the men found a regular gig at a resort in the Blue Ridge Mountains, where they entertained vacationers with covers of the latest hits. With a little money in his pocket, Jimmy decided he wanted a car for touring and heard about a nice used Dodge for sale in his bandmate's hometown of Bristol. The car was a little out of his price range, so he went with Jack Pierce to ask Jack's father to loan him $300. Jack's father was a local barber, and his mother ran a boarding house where the men could stay while they were in town. That boarding house was right across the street from the old Taylor Christian Hat Company, and the day they were there was August 1st, 1927. If you listen to episode 8 of this podcast, you'll know what was going on in that old warehouse on that particular day. A man named Ralph Peer, who worked for the Victor Talking Machine Company, was in town to record local musicians on his portable recording setup. This recording session has come to be known as the Big Bang of country music but it probably wouldn't have been if Jimmy Rogers hadn't come through to borrow money from his friend's father. Jimmy and Jack went in and talked to Peer and arranged for an audition on August 3rd. Then they drove back to North Carolina, picked up the rest of the band and Jimmy's wife and daughter, and returned to Bristol. At their audition, they played the hit tunes they were used to playing at the resort. Ralph Peer was more interested in original music that he could own the rights to and asked the men to come back the next day and try again. As the band practiced that night, they all no doubt saw their name on an album and their discussion turned to what that name should be. Jimmy wanted to keep the Jimmy Rogers Entertainers, but the other men preferred their original name, the Ten of a Ramblers. They couldn't agree, so the following day, Jimmy walked in alone. He only ended up recording two songs, Sleep Baby Sleep and The Soldier's Sweetheart. They weren't great songs, but Ralph Peer saw something special in the young man who played them. The Ten of a Ramblers would come in later that day and record their own session. While they were there, Jimmy packed his wife and kid into his new-to-them Dodge, and they drove straight through to my hometown of Washington, D.C. Jimmy and his family moved in with his wife's sister. He would find work at a movie theater, and Carrie would waitress at a local tea house. His songs were released in October that year, and were moderately successful, 
and Jimmy became determined to make it big. The following month, he took all the money they had saved, a paltry $10, and drove to New York City. He went straight to Times Square, where he asked around to find a fancy hotel. People sent him to the hotel manger. Jimmy walked right up to the front desk, showed the clerk his album, and told them he was there to record more songs. He got them to give him a room and told them to charge it to Ralph Peer at Victor. He then got them to make a call to Victor so he could speak with Peer himself. Peer was impressed at the young man's pluck, paid for the room, and set up a new session. They would record four sides, including the song that would go on to be his first big hit, Blue Yodel. Blue Yodel is definitely a blues song, but it's also a country song, and, well, there's yodeling too. It's hard to say exactly what Blue Yodel is, which is a huge part of Jimmy Rogers' appeal. It would go on to sell a million copies. Blue Yodel was such a big hit that Jimmy got to play one of DC's premier venues, the Earl Theater, now the Warner. After the show, the audience went wild, prompting not one, not two, but 16 curtain calls from the young singer. Over the next six years, Jimmy Rogers would record over 100 songs and tour all over the country. One of my favorite recordings was Blue Yodel No. 9, which he recorded in Hollywood with a 28-year-old trumpet player named Louis Armstrong with Armstrong's wife, Lil, on piano. He made a short film called The Singing Breakman, which made him more popular still. His songs were released all over the world, making Rogers a star in places like England, Australia, Japan, and India. He was also, apparently, a big hit with the Kipsigi tribe in Kenya, who referred to him, then and still, as Jimmy Rocha. Jimmy moved from D.C. to Texas in 1929, where he was made an honorary Texas Ranger. By 1930, he was earning $100,000 a year. Tragically, as Jimmy's fortune was on the way up, America's fortunes were on the way down. The Great Depression didn't leave people with much disposable income for concert tickets or albums. Jimmy continued touring, though, raising money for the Red Cross to help support Dust Bowl victims. He ended up playing a lot of small towns, often setting up in high school auditoriums. It was probably these small shows that endeared him the most to his legion of fans. And through it all, Jimmy's health continued to decline. In May of 1933, he was back in New York City to record and back staying at the Manger Hotel, although it had been renamed the Taft by that point. His first day in the studio, he recorded four songs, but it took so much out of him, he couldn't come in at all the next day. When he did return, he had to record sitting down and had a nurse with him to monitor his health. On May 26, 1933, Jimmy Rogers, the father of country music, the singing brakeman died of a pulmonary hemorrhage in his room at the Taft Hotel. He was 35 years old. 
when the Country Music Hall of Fame was founded in 1961. By a unanimous vote, Jimmy Rogers was its very first inductee. He has since been inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and finally, in 2013, the Blues Hall of Fame. Jimmy's music transcended genre, class, and race, and influenced musicians from Gene Autry to Muddy Waters to Bob Dylan. Howlin' Wolf loved Jimmy Rogers and tried to imitate him, but said, quote, I couldn't do no yodeling, so I turned to Howlin', and it's done me just fine. Rogers' biographer, Nolan Porterfield, wrote that Rogers brought to country music, quote, free-swinging, born-to-lose blues tradition of cheating hearts and faded love, whiskey rivers, and stoic endurance. After his death in New York City, Jimmy went for one last train ride, a train that took him home, home to Mississippi. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every time. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is my privilege to be back with you again today. In our last episode, we took a deep dive into the history of the fabulous Mississippi Delta. But during my six weeks in the Magnolia State, I covered quite a bit of ground beyond the Delta. From Corinth in the north to tiny Iuka, and on to Elvis's hometown of Tupelo. I drove a nice stretch of the Natchez Trace, passed time in Columbus, Meridian, and Jackson, and spent some wonderful days on the beach along Mississippi's Gulf Coast. It truly is a wonderful state, full of fascinating history, adorable small towns, and of course, incredible southern hospitality and delicious food. It was challenging to whittle down my time there to just these five stories I have for you today, but I think together they provide a good look at Mississippi beyond the Delta. I hope you enjoy hearing them as much as I enjoyed telling them. During my stay in the Magnolia State, I was happy to be able to catch up with my friend, Oxford-based singer-songwriter Luke Fisher. I've seen Luke perform before, but on this trip, I had the pleasure of watching him play at the legendary Taylor Grocery in Taylor, Mississippi, home of the best catfish in the state. I'm thrilled to have Luke as my musical guest for today's show, and I know you're going to love his music as much as I do. You can find Luke's album, Till I'm Gone, on iTunes and Spotify. If you'd like to find out more about me, hear more about my time in Mississippi, see where I am now, or just to get in touch, head over to my website, www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook, on Twitter at MilesToGoTweet, and on Instagram at MilesToGoBeforeIsleep all using the number two for me and you. You can also find podcast-specific pages at American Anthology. All right, let's get on with today's show. Go pour yourself a tall glass of sweet tea. Find yourself a comfortable chair. Sit back and settle in, and let me take you to the rail yards, battlefields, and honky-tonks of incomparable Mississippi. Mississippi. 
Sometime around 1764, in a village on the Noxabee River, in what would later be the state of Mississippi, a Choctaw baby boy was born. Although no one knows for sure, it's often been speculated that his parents were killed by a rival Creek Indian faction when he was just a boy, instilling in him a lifelong hatred towards the Creeks. This boy grew up training to be a warrior, and before he turned 13, had fought in many battles against the Creeks. He later joined war parties crossing the Mississippi River to fight Cotto and Osage groups over hunting ground to not only feed their own, but compete in the burgeoning deer hide trade with Europe. This boy fought bravely and fearlessly and earned the name Apushmataha Hubi, one translation of which means his arms and all his weapons are fatal to his foe. We would come to remember him as simply Pushmataha. Pushmataha was known to his people not only as a brave warrior, but as a deep thinker with a logical mind and as an eloquent speaker. When Pushmataha spoke, people listened. These qualities contributed to Pushmataha being chosen as a leader of the Oklahanali, or Six Towns District of the Choctaw, one of the three major districts of the Choctaw Nation, sometime around 1800. In 1802, Pushmataha went to represent his people in a meeting between the leaders of the Choctaw Nation and senior officer of the army, James Wilkinson, who represented the United States. As a brief side note, long after his death, Wilkinson was outed as a spy for the Spanish government, who penetrated high into the U.S. military and government, prompting Teddy Roosevelt to say, quote, In all our history, there is no more despicable character. End quote. But back to 1802, where he convinces the Choctaw leaders to sign the Treaty of Fort Confederation, which exchanged 10,000 acres of Choctaw land for the tragic sum of one U.S. dollar. This was the third treaty signed between the U.S. and the Choctaw, all of which had chipped away at Choctaw lands in return for very little, $2,000 and some blacksmithing tools. A fourth treaty was signed the following year, exchanging another 850,000 acres, this time for some rifles and blankets and the clearing of Choctaw debts they couldn't pay. Pushmataha seemed to understand the pattern in these treaties and decided he needed to move higher up the chain of command. In 1805, he traveled to my hometown of Washington, D.C., where he met with then-president Thomas Jefferson. I couldn't find out much about this meeting, but Pushmataha believed that Jefferson had pointed to the long, peaceful relationship between the United States and the Choctaw, 
and to promise that if the Choctaw were ever in trouble, that the U.S. would be on their side. Pushmataha had this friendship in mind when he negotiated the 1805 Treaty of Mount Dexter. The Choctaw gave up another 4 million acres, but in exchange were granted an annual payment of $48,000, no small sum in 1805. While he took Jefferson at his word in 1805, it was in 1811 that he threw his people all in with the United States. America was once again on the brink of war with England. Shawnee Chief Tecumseh, who had also watched his people's homeland shrink as America grew and expanded, saw this as an opportunity. He set out to bring together Native Americans in a united confederacy, allied with the British, to go to war to take back their lands. He traveled south and stood before a huge gathering of Choctaw and Chickasaw people. He asked them, quote, Where are the Pequot? Where are the Narragansett, the Mohican, the Poconet, and other powerful tribes of our people? They have vanished before the avarice and oppression of the white man. Sleep not longer, O Choctaws and Chickasaws. Will not the bones of our dead be plowed up and their graves turned to plowed fields? End quote. Obviously, a powerful and persuasive speaker himself. Tecumseh certainly had their attention. It's hard to say how things would have unfolded had Pushmataha not been there that day. To be honest, it probably wouldn't have changed much in the long run. But, of course, we'll never know. But Pushmataha was there that day. He stood in front of his people and stated, quote, These white Americans give us fair exchange. Their cloth, their tools implements, and other things which the Choctaws need, but do not make. So, in marked contrast with the experience of the Shawnee, it will be seen that the whites and Indians in this section are living on friendly and mutually beneficial terms. He went on, now addressing Tecumseh directly. You are a monarch, he said, an unyielding tyrant within your own domain. The Choctaws and Chickasaws have no monarchs. Their chieftains are the people's servants. The majority has spoken on this contention. You have elected to fight with the British. The Americans have been our friends, and we shall stand with them." End quote. That being said, he gave Tecumseh until the end of the day to be out of Choctaw territory. Tecumseh would have more success with the Creeks, the longtime enemies of the Choctaw. The Creek Nation would divide over the question of loyalty. The Southern faction would join the U.S. and the Choctaw, while the Northern Creeks, later known as the Red Sticks, would follow Tecumseh's lead and take up arms against the United States. The Red Sticks wanted to maintain their traditional ways, and it's hard to fault them for that. A warrior above and beyond all else, Pushmataha began to prepare for war. He formalized his alliance with the United States and was made a brigadier general. Pushmataha and his men joined General Claiborne to fight the Red Stick Creeks at the Battle of Holy Ground. They then linked up with future president Andrew Jackson and helped defeat the Red Sticks at Pensacola and at Horseshoe Bend. Opinions differ on this, but he may have also joined Jackson against the British in the Battle of New Orleans, 
the final battle of the War of 1812. After the war, Andrew Jackson himself sat down with Pushmataha to negotiate the Treaty of Doak's Stand, but it would be hard to believe that the terms he demanded were for a trusted ally. The treaty stipulated that those Choctaw who wanted to stay in Mississippi could apply for and be granted U.S. citizenship, the first such offer ever made to any group not of European descent. Each family would be granted a tract of land on which to live and work as they saw fit. Those who wanted to continue their traditional lifestyle would have to move across the Mississippi River, where the government would grant them a tract of land in what was then called Indian Territory. Pushmataha pushed back, stating he had traveled to that land and it was poor ground for hunting and farming and there were already white settlers there. Jackson made it clear that these were the best terms they were ever going to get, but Pushmataha did negotiate for an allotment of food, clothing, supplies, rifles, and ammunition. He also negotiated for a decent sum of money to be set aside for the education of Choctaw children, something he knew would be essential to the long-term survival of his people. With those provisions, Pushmataha signed the treaty. In the fall of 1824, Pushmataha led a group of Choctaws north and returned to my hometown of Washington, D.C. There he met with President James Monroe and Secretary of War John C. Calhoun to seek clarity and correct errors from the Treaty of Doak's stand. In these meetings, he told them that he had been there years earlier to meet with Thomas Jefferson, who told him to return if his people were ever in trouble. He told them, quote, I can boast that none of my fathers or grandfathers, nor any Choctaw, ever drew his bow against the United States. They have always been friendly. We have held the hands of the United States so long that our nails are long like bird's claws, and there is no danger of them slipping out. My nation has given of their country until it is very small. We are in trouble. The result of these meetings would be the 1825 Treaty of Washington City, which addressed some of Pushmataha's concerns. Sadly, he would not live to sign it himself. During this winter visit, Pushmataha developed an upper respiratory infection, and the 60-year-old chief quickly lost his strength. He addressed his friends who had accompanied him to Washington. He told them, quote, I am about to die but you will return to our country. As you go along the path, you will see the flowers and hear the birds sing, but Pushmataha will see and hear them no more. When you reach home, they will ask you, where is Pushmataha? And you will say to them, he is no more. They will hear your words as they do the fall of a great oak in the stillness of the midnight woods. As he lay dying, Andrew Jackson came to see him on his deathbed. The two men talked of the battles they had fought and the lives they had lived. Pushmataha asked that when he died, let the big guns be fired over me. The great Choctaw warrior died on Christmas Eve, 1824. For all his faults, Jackson arranged for the chief to be buried in Congressional Cemetery with the full military honors befitting a brigadier general. His funeral procession stretched out for a full mile. And yes, 
the big guns were fired in his honor. Sadly, just a few years later, it would be then President Andrew Jackson who would sign the Indian Removal Act that would be the final push to remove the Choctaw from their ancestral land in Mississippi. An argument could be made for the harsh treatment of the Red Stick Creeks, or the Shawnee or Comanche, or a number of other native groups who took up arms against the United States, even if you can sympathize with their reasoning. But the Choctaw? The Choctaw always fought beside U.S. troops. And that didn't end with the War of 1812. While we may remember the Navajo Code Talkers from World War II, all 19 of the original World War I Code Talkers were Choctaw. And for all of their loyalty, the Choctaw got a pretty raw deal. It's not too late to make amends for that, but we'd all have to take a lesson from Pushmataha. No matter what has already happened, we'd have to come together in good faith and sit down at the negotiating table one more time. I raised my hand goodbye as you drove around the bend. Felt like a beginning as much as an end. I walked round back behind the house and shed a few stray tears and decided that I'd stick around, maybe give it a few more years. Some dream are true, some fall apart, like the pieces of a soldier's heart. Some things you know become unreal, well I must believe a heart can All men are created equal, says the Great Declaration, and now a great act attests this verity. Today, we make the Declaration a reality. These are the words of Charles Sumner, the United States Senator from the state of Massachusetts, as he stood to argue the case for the seating of the country's first black senator in 1870. To most people in the chamber that day, Hiram Revels was a mystery. They didn't know him as a person. They were simply arguing based on the fact that he was black. To those who knew him, though, he was the right man at the right time for the job. Extremely well-educated, well-spoken, and well-traveled, Revels was also a Civil War veteran and had lived in both the North and the South. Someone had to be first and Revels was as good a candidate as one was likely to find. Hiram Rhodes Revels was born free, the son of a Baptist preacher, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, in 1827. Although the education of black people was forbidden in North Carolina at the time, Revels' parents understood its importance, and young Hiram quietly and secretly learned under the watchful eye of a local woman. In 1838, at the age of 11, Revels went to live with his brother Elias in Lincolnton, North Carolina, where he apprenticed as a barber in his brother's shop. When he was just 17, Revels moved to Indiana, where he attended the Beech Grove Quaker Seminary, and then to Ohio, where he studied at the Dark County Seminary. In 1845, he was ordained a minister 
and spent several years preaching in different locations around the Midwest. In 1853, Revels moved to St. Louis. Despite the prohibition on free black people moving to Missouri, most agreed that preachers weren't there to cause harm nor instigate an uprising. A year later, though, Revels was arrested for his preaching, although in his own words, he was not subjected to any violence. When he was released, he left Missouri to study religion at Knox College in Illinois, and then moved to Baltimore, where he served as both a pastor and the principal of a local black high school. After the outbreak of the Civil War, Revels joined the Chaplain's Corps and helped organize two regiments of the United States Colored Troops. He traveled south with the Army to Mississippi and was there during the long siege at Vicksburg. After the war, Hiram Revels left the Army and returned to civilian preaching. He spent some time in New Orleans and a few other places around the South before landing in Natchez in 1866 where he settled in with his wife and five daughters. There, he helped found several schools for black children and quickly became a trusted member of the community. Soon thereafter, Revels was elected as an alderman and the following year, he was chosen to represent Adams County in the Mississippi State Senate. When he went to take his seat in 1870, he was asked to provide the opening prayer for the assembly. His words and mannerism made a profound impression on those people gathered there that day. The most important order of business the state senate had to sort out during that session was to fill the United States Senate seats left vacant since Mississippi's secession in 1861. Those seats had previously been held by Albert Brown and, of course, Jefferson Davis. Before the 17th Amendment of 1913, which provided for the popular election of senators, they were chosen, as was laid out in the Constitution, by the state legislature. And in 1870, the Reconstruction-era state legislature of the state of Mississippi voted 85 to 15 to fill Albert Brown's vacant seat with Hiram Revels. When Revels arrived in my hometown of Washington, D.C., he was not welcomed with open arms. Within the U.S. Senate chamber, there was staunch opposition to seating Revels. The two men who led this opposition were the senators from Kentucky and Delaware, which, it must be mentioned, despite their loyalty to the Union, were the last slaveholding states in the country, maintaining slavery within their borders until the 13th Amendment was ratified, a full eight months after General Lee surrendered at Appomattox, and almost two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. As I'm sure you remember from history class, the Emancipation Proclamation was only valid in those states who had joined the rebellion. The strongest argument they presented was that the United States Supreme Court had clearly stated in the 1857 Dred Scott decision that black people were not citizens of the United States. They became citizens, these men argued, when the 14th Amendment was passed in 1868. Therefore, Revels had not been a U.S. citizen for the requisite nine years, as stated in the Constitution. The arguments went back and forth for many hours before Charles Sumner, the senator from Massachusetts, stepped to the podium. He stated, quote, 
The time has passed for argument. All men are created equal, says the great declaration, and now a great act attests this verity. Today we make the declaration a reality. The declaration was only half established by independence. The greatest duty remained behind. In assuring the equal rights of all, we complete the work." End quote. On February 25, 1870, at 4.40 in the afternoon, in front of a packed Senate gallery and by a vote of 48 to 8, Senator Hiram Rhodes Revels took his seat, the first African-American ever to do so. Later that night, Revels attended a party in his honor held by Professor Wilson, who was the president of the Freedmen's Bank, at his house on I Street. I would love to have been a fly on the wall that night. Revel's term lasted only one year. During that year, he served on the Labor and Education Committees and on the committee which oversaw the District of Columbia, on which he unsuccessfully argued for school integration in our nation's capital. While he certainly fought to protect and advance the rights of black Americans, he made it very clear that he was in Washington to represent all the people of Mississippi. He even argued for amnesty and the restoration of full citizenship for former Confederates over the objections of his white colleagues. He pushed for more infrastructure in Mississippi and levees along the Mississippi River and always spoke with an eloquence befitting a man of his education and background. When his term ended in 1871, Hiram Revels returned to Mississippi and became the first president of Alcorn Agricultural and Mechanical College, now Alcorn State, the first land-grant school for black students in the country. He retired in 1882 and moved to Holly Springs, where he returned to the ministry and taught theology at what is now Rust University. Hiram Rhodes Revels, America's first black senator, died of a stroke on January 16, 1901. He's buried in Hillcrest Cemetery in Holly Springs, Mississippi. During the Reconstruction era, 17 African Americans served in the United States Congress. 15 in the House of Representatives, and two in the Senate. The other black senator, Blanche Bruce, also of Mississippi, was elected to a full term in 1874. As you may remember from episode 17 of this podcast, the Compromise of 1876 would end Reconstruction in the South and begin almost a century of Jim Crow laws. And it would be almost a century before the next African-American would take a seat in the United States Senate. That senator, of course, we remember from episode 22 of this podcast, was my fellow native Washingtonian, Edward Brooke, representing the state of Massachusetts. In the entire history of our country, nearly 2,000 people have served in the United States Senate. As of this recording, 11 have been black. From that small group have come other firsts, as two of those 11 were Barack Obama and Kamala Harris. But paving the way for them was Hiram Rhodes Revels, representing, however briefly, the great state of Mississippi. I keep a few illusions 
Tom always remembered the years he spent in Mississippi as some of the happiest of his life. Tom's father, Cornelius Coffin Williams, or CC as he was called by his friends, was a traveling shoe salesman. Because he was on the road most of the time, his wife, Tom's mother, Edwina, spent much of those years with her parents. Her father was the Reverend Walter Dakin, and so it was that Thomas Lanier Williams III was born in the Episcopal Rectory in Columbus, Mississippi on March 26, 1911. When the Reverend was later reassigned to a church in Clarksdale, he brought his daughter and three grandchildren, Tom included, with him. The rectory was a safe and wonderful place to grow up, and Tom often looked back fondly at that time. He was a bright boy, but never very strong physically, and a childhood bout with diphtheria left him bedbound for almost a whole year. Despite this, his childhood was a happy one, except, perhaps, when his father blew through town like a dark cloud, usually drunk and looking for a fight. But soon enough, he would blow out again and life would quickly get back to normal. That was, at least, until Tom turned eight and his father was promoted to an office job at the International Shoe Company in St. Louis and moved his family north to join him. Tom found the big city cold and inhospitable and longed for the days he spent with his grandparents in Mississippi. Bullied by kids at school for his southern accent and effeminate nature, he tucked into himself more and more. It was then that Tom began writing, a talent which seemed to come quite naturally to him. When Tom was just 16, he wrote his first published piece, an essay titled, Can a Good Wife Be a Good Sport? for Smart Set Magazine. Later that same year, he wrote a short story called The Vengeance of Nitosis for a magazine called Weird Tales, for which he was paid $35 a good sum for a teenager in 1928. The following year, Tom went to the University of Missouri, where he studied journalism, hoping to turn his writing into a full-time career. Tom joined a fraternity, and his enthusiasm for a short stint in intramural wrestling earned him the nickname Tiger Williams among his fraternity brothers. 
Tom wrote for the school newspaper, but was less than thrilled with his beat as the farm reports and obituary writer. He took a class in modern drama, which resulted in his first published play called Hot Milk at Three in the Morning. Tom was well-liked, but really just an average student at best. Unfortunately for him, ROTC was mandatory for all male students in those days, which proved to be his undoing at the university. After failing ROTC for three years in a row, his father was finally fed up and pulled Tom out of school. He put Tom to work at the shoe factory, something Tom truly despised. Tom spent all his free time writing, trying desperately to find a way out of the factory. At 24, he suffered a nervous breakdown and left the factory for good. The following year, Tom enrolled at Washington University in St. Louis, and the year after that, he transferred to the University of Iowa, where he finally earned a BA in English in 1938. Over the next few years, Tom found work where he could. He waited tables in New York City, worked as an elevator operator, and even found himself as a caretaker on a chicken ranch in Laguna Beach, California. In 1939, he wrote a play called Battle of Angels, which actually went on to be produced in Boston the following year. In his own words, the play, quote, failed spectacularly. He did make some money off of it, though. Money he used to move to New Orleans. He found an apartment at 722 Toulouse Street, just seven blocks from my old apartment in the French Quarter. He got a job working for the WPA during World War II, and then caught a break with a six-month contract writing for MGM in Hollywood. During this time, he wrote a story called Portraits of a Girl in Glass. As the war was winding down, he converted this story into a play and changed the name to The Glass Menagerie. The play was produced in Chicago and opened to rave reviews. It soon moved to Broadway, where it became a hit. In fact, the New York Drama Critics Circle gave The Glass Menagerie an award for best play of the season. While this play was winning awards, Tom was busy working on a follow-up, which he called The Poker Night. Tom modeled the heroine of The Poker Night after his sister Rose, while the lead male role he took from a man he had worked with at the shoe factory in St. Louis. The story was set in Tom's adopted hometown of New Orleans. It debuted on Broadway on December 3rd, 1947 and went on to be one of the most successful and oft-performed plays in American history. It won a Tony Award and the Pulitzer Prize. In 1951, it was turned into an Academy Award-winning motion picture. The success of the play and its film adaptation made Tom a household name. If you don't yet know who I'm talking about, but you're a fan of this podcast, you can probably guess that this production was not Tom Williams' The Poker Night. In 1938, Tom started using a pen name, the origin of which is subject to debate. Many suggest it was a nickname he got in college from his friends teasing him about his Southern upbringing. 
From what we have just heard, it may have been more historically accurate to have called him Mississippi Williams, but for whatever reason, they went with Tennessee instead. And at some point during the editing process, his big breakthrough hit had been renamed from the Poker Night to a streetcar named Desire. You told me you were headed out to live Intended to give all you had to give You said you were leaving with the light of dawn invited me to go and said come on come on come on come on you invited me to live and said come on you were throwing off the chains of killing fear going after all the things that you hold you laughing when you were almost gone you held out your hand to me and said come on come on come on come on well you pulled me into the light and said come on when we talk about flying brothers the wright brothers are probably the first thing that comes to mind and rightfully so We talked about the Wright brothers and their flight into the history books on episode four of this podcast. But if you were having that conversation in southern Mississippi, they would definitely tell you the story of the Flying Key brothers and how, for 27 days in 1935, all eyes in the aviation world were trained on the skies above Meridian in a tiny Curtis Robin airplane affectionately named Ole Miss. When Fred and Al Key were just kids, they were out playing in a field near their house when three wayward planes from a nearby World War I training base came in for an emergency landing. The boys stopped in their tracks and stood mesmerized by those wonderful flying machines. They both decided that very day that they wanted to be pilots, whatever it took. By the time they were old enough, the war was over, but they went to flight school anyway. They learned to fly and spent the 1920s barnstorming around the country, performing aerial stunts as part of a flying circus over gate-mouthed gawkers at county fairs. After a few years of fun in the sun, both men married, and they took a job managing Meridian Municipal Airport, which also provided them housing on the property. Life was good for the Key brothers. And then the Great Depression hit, and air travel certainly wasn't at the top of most people's lists. The men started to hear rumblings around town about plowing the airfield under and planting cotton there instead. This distressed the brothers, as they not only depended on the airport for their jobs, but also for their homes. They needed to come up with a plan to save the airport something big that would capture the nation's attention. Now, if I had begun this story the same way that I did, but I was telling it in Illinois, people there might have jumped in to talk about the flying Hunter brothers. In 1930, John and Kenneth Hunter had flown their plane, the city of Chicago, 
to an amazing endurance record of 553 hours, 41 minutes, and 30 seconds without landing once. The Key brothers talked it through and decided they could break that record. As soon as the decision was made, they got to work making it happen. The first thing they needed was a plane. They put in a call to their old friend Bill Ward, an aerial photographer up in Oxford. After laying out their idea, Bill was sold and agreed to loan them his Curtis Robin J-1 Deluxe for the attempt. With a plane at their disposal, the brothers started talking up their plan, raising money and enlisting the help of their neighbors for the project. They had a local welder come out and design and build a catwalk around the front of the plane so the engine could be serviced in flight. They had another man design an oversized fuel tank, which took up the vast majority of the plane's small cabin. The front of the modified tank would double as the pilot's seat. A small mattress would go in the tail of the plane to allow whoever wasn't piloting at the time to sleep, but that person would need to drape their legs over the back of the fuel tank. A VHF radio was installed, perhaps the first one ever installed in a civilian plane. The biggest wrinkle they needed to iron out also presented the most potential danger. They were going to have to refuel the plane often during their attempt. A separate plane would be used for this process, which would lower a hose to the Key Brothers. The problem was that if one of the planes hit some turbulence, the nozzle could be ripped free. If fuel hit the hot engine or the exhaust, the plane could go up quick. Al and Fred knew a guy who might be able to help them with this problem. Their friend, A.D. Hunter, didn't graduate from high school, but he was one of those guys who just seems to know how things work. He thought on it for a few days and then got to tinkering. A.D. designed a special nozzle, which only worked when it was plugged into the tank. If the nozzle accidentally pulled free, the flow of fuel was automatically stopped. This modified nozzle was simple, but also game-changing. It's essentially the same design the military uses for mid-air refueling to this day. They painted the planes silver with Mississippi's state flag emblazoned on both sides of the fuselage. Finally, Genevieve Lynn, one of Mississippi's first female pilots, was given the honor and christened the plane Ole Miss. The day was June 21, 1934, and 10,000 people had come to the airfield to watch Ole Miss take off and to cheer on the local boys and their record attempt. Ole Miss took off without a hitch, but the hitches were definitely to come. The refueling attempts went as planned, but the generator wasn't charging the battery properly. At some point on their sixth day, Flames burst from the cylinder head, and the decision to land their plane became an easy one. They'd been up for only 123 hours. Undeterred, Al and Fred and their team got right to work to make the necessary repairs and adjustments. A month later, they were ready to try again. This time, only around a thousand people came to watch them take off, though. Four days into their second flight, a storm blew in, and if you've ever been in Mississippi in July, 
you know that some of those summer storms are no joke. They headed west to try and get ahead of it, and when they came out of the clouds, they looked down and saw the Mississippi River. They'd flown clear across the state. They barely made it back to Meridian and were flying on fumes when their refueling plane lowered its life-giving nozzle. They were safe, but not for long. Another storm came through, this one knocking their exhaust pipe loose. Fearing this might ignite the oil on the underside of the plane, they brought it in for a landing. Their second attempt only lasted 164 hours, less than two days longer than their first attempt, and still almost 400 hours shy of the record. Almost a year went by before the Key brothers got old Miss off the ground again. It was June 4, 1935, at 12.32 in the afternoon, when the old modified Curtis Robin rolled down the runway at Meridian Municipal Airport. Less than 100 people showed up to watch them take off, but off they took to chase the Hunter Brothers' 554-hour endurance record for the third time. They say the third time's the charm, and luck was certainly on their side this time. Around and around they flew, in the skies high over Meridian, Mississippi. Minutes turned to hours, and hours turned to days, and slowly but surely, those days started to add up. The plane refueled several times a day, and their meals, packed by their wives in their apartments at the airport, were lowered from the refueling plane in a weighted bucket to keep it from swinging around too much. When the keys hit the two-week mark, two weeks straight in the air without landing, reporters started to show up. The two started getting fan mail and letters of encouragement, which were delivered to them in their food bucket. On June 24th, 20 days into their flight, Al found himself in excruciating pain. He had developed an abscess under one of his teeth. Their father called a dentist who came to the airport and, over the radio, talked him through lancing it himself with a needle in midair. It was a success. Not long after that, Fred was out on the catwalk greasing the engine when the plane hit a patch of turbulence that sent him flying. Thankfully, he was wearing an electrical lineman's harness and was able to pull himself back to the plane. That week, they received a letter from the record-holding Flying Hunter Brothers wishing them luck, and on June 27th, at 3.17 p.m., the Key Brothers broke the Hunter Brothers' record. The citizens of Meridian gathered at the airport, and when the record was broken, officially renamed it Key Field in their honor. The brothers were honored, but announced they were going to keep flying, maybe until the 4th of July. God had other plans, though. On June 29th, a major storm brought them once again dangerously close to running out of fuel. The next day, their battery caught fire, and they had to cut the engine while they tried to put it out. They descended to less than 100 feet above the ground when they finally restarted the engine and pulled up. The day after that, one of their stabilizers failed, making Ole Miss hard to control, especially during refueling. Finally, on July 1st, they decided to stop tempting fate and bring their incredible flight to a close. At 6.06 p.m., 
the brothers landed at the newly renamed Key Field. Fewer than 100 people saw them take off, but 30,000 were on hand to watch them land. The Key brothers had their record. They had been in the air for 653 hours and 34 minutes, 27 days of flying. They'd gone through 6,000 gallons of fuel, 300 gallons of oil, and traveled 52,320 miles, enough to have circled the planet twice with plenty left to spare. The airport was saved. It's still there today, and it's still called Key Field. Appropriately, it's home to the 186th Air Refueling Wing of the Mississippi Air National Guard. The Key brothers both went on to join the Air Force during World War II. Both flew as fighter pilots, and both earned the Distinguished Flying Cross. Al stayed in the Air Force and rose to the rank of Colonel. After he retired, he came back to Meridian, where he was welcomed home with open arms. He was elected mayor in 1965 and served in that role for eight years. Frank went back to Key Field and ran the Key Brothers Flying Service out of Meridian until the day he died. And as for Ole Miss, she was purchased by the Smithsonian and hung in the National Air and Space Museum in my hometown of Washington, D.C. She found her place in a small corner among the greatest flying machines America has ever known. In Mississippi, they saluted all of these things in the way that only Mississippians would, with a hearty hotty toddy. You told me you were headed out to live, intended to give all you had to give. You said you were leaving with the light of dawn. Invited me to go and said, Come on, come on, come on, come on. You invited me to live and said, Come on. You were throwing off the chains of killing fear, going after all the things that you hold. you laughing when you were almost gone you held out your hand to me and said come on come on come on come on well you pulled me into the light and said come that's it for the show this week thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed it please take a minute to rate and review the show how awesome was the music this week? Many thanks to the incredibly talented Oxford, Mississippi-based singer-songwriter Luke Fisher for providing the music for this week's show. If you enjoyed it, be sure you support local music and find Luke on iTunes and Spotify. Thanks, as always, to Kevin McLeod over at IncomTech.com for background music and to the wonderful folks over at FreeSFX.com. Our theme music comes from the legendary Memphis Slim. If you want to find out more about me, see photos from my time in Mississippi, or just drop me a line. Check out my website, 
www.milestogobeforeisleep.com. That's www.miles2gobeforeisleep.com. Find me on Facebook, on Twitter at Miles to Go Tweet, and on Instagram at Miles to Go Before I Sleep, all using the number two for me and you. Our next episode is going to take us west, across the mighty Mississippi, and then south, all the way to the Mexican border, as I take you deep into the Lone Star state of Texas. Be sure not to miss it. It's going to be a good one. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, I am your host, Mike Harding, and this is American Anthology. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel, and your headlights point it towards your next adventure. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.